Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian from Paris, and hope that everybody is having a great holiday weekend. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Defense budget uncertainty in Washington as the House sets uh, new budget levels and key committees mark up the Biden administration's defense budget request. Spirit Era Systems strikes a deal with its unionized workforce. BAE Systems invited reporters to visit the company's Wharton facility to take an up-close look at the company's Tempest program uh, that is now better known as the Global Combat Aircraft Program that also involves Italy, Japan, and Sweden. And a look ahead to the Paris Air Show that starts as you're all listening to this program, including our expectations on what to expect from the French, German, and Spanish SCAF effort, and what could be record-setting if unbelievable new commercial aircraft orders. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners uh, in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy uh, also uh, from Washington, D.C., and now all of us are within a couple of blocks of one another uh, in uh, sunny Paris. Guys, welcome back to the program. Yeah, great to be here, Vago, as always, and makes it even more special that we're doing it from Paris. Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much, Vago. Really looking forward to this week. Greetings from just a few blocks away, Vago. Great to be on. And given given the challenges some of you had getting here, uh, I, I think it's a wonder that we're actually being able to produce the program this week. Um, Ron, uh, start us off. Uh, House uh, has new spending levels, uh, including for defense. Uh, authorization and appropriation committees have issued their markups. Richard, I want to get your sense uh, on that uh, in just a moment as, as well. Uh, and of course, there is a lot of anticipation about what's going to happen this week at the 54th Paris Air Show that convenes for the first time in four years uh, at the historic Le Bourget Airfield outside the French capital. How, how did the group perform this week, Ron? I mean, sort of overall, and what were what were the big drivers? Yeah, it's interesting. If, if you look at the performance in the week, you would have thought that the commercial aerospace names would have done better. And um, that really wasn't the case. Uh, the, the best performing name that we cover was uh, Virgin Galactic because they announced commercial service. Their shares were all over the place, but ended up the week uh, almost 13%. Uh, Embraer was up almost 3.5%. General Dynamics, 2%. You know, the defense names, Northrop was up a percent. General Dynamics was flat. Lockheed was flat. GE, General Electric, was flat. Um, Raytheon Technologies was actually down a percent and a half. Um, and then if you if you look at, um, I think it's important to look at these names since the beginning of the year, and you you, you really start to see a trend, right? So um, the, the higher volatility names, you know, Virgin Galactic's up 36% this year. Embraer's up 52%. You know, General Dynamics is down 16%. Northrop is down 16%. Uh, if you look at Airbus, it's up 18%. It was up 1.3% on the week. Uh, GE is a huge champion. You know, General Electric's up 62% on the year. Lockheed's down 6%. Raytheon's down 3%. Boeing's up 15%. Right, so it's it's interesting, right? You get this, this feeling that things have really kind of moved in the air show, but um, not not so much. Um, WTI crude uh, was holding steady around 72, Brent around 76. Uh, the 10 year has been in this kind of 3.7 to 3.9 level now for several weeks. We're still there. The VIX is as low as it's been in five years, right? So that fear index, a lot of fears out of the market. Uh, one notable thing uh, that you know, we've been tracking since the whole debt 
ceiling crisis. Um, US CDS or uh, so the credit default swap spreads are at 35, you know, kind of before this whole mess happened, they were 10. Um, they're probably permanently higher now. Uh, so insuring US debt going forward is going to cost a little bit more. And, and, and I guess why that's important is it really does, you know, kind of that's the real fallout of what just happened, that somehow, you know, the US's credit has been essentially downgraded a little bit um, by the, you know, by the insurance market. Yeah, kind of sad, actually. It, it, it is sad, and, and we didn't recover from it the last time around either, right? I mean, so you can't rub that one. Uh, you can't walk that one off. Um, it, does the cloudy uh, defense uh, budget outlook and the markups affect, um, you know, I mean, what, what feedback? I mean, obviously, you're going to get a lot more feedback because you're posting a whole bunch of investors here uh, during, uh, you know, for the week. You know, what, what's the impact on, of, of the cloudy defense outlook? Yeah, I mean, so far, not a not a heck of a lot. I mean, you know, defense, and, and I think for good reason, right? I mean, defense had a humongous year last year, right? It, everybody tends to focus just kind of you know, what's right in front of their face. But if you look at defense on a longer view, you know, even though Northrop's down about 16% this year, it was up 40% last year, right? So on a, on a two-year view, they're still kind of ahead of where they were. And, and most, of, most of defense is, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at where defense is, we don't get a ton of questions on it. And, and I think the real question becomes, as we go into the presidential election year next year, you know, what happens? And, and history is, you know, pretty, pretty consistent, right? Honestly, if you look at the defense stocks during a presidential election year, about 80% of the time, they outperform. And when they outperform, they outperform on average by like a thousand basis points. So the setup for next year for the defense stocks is actually is, is, is pretty good. But at the moment, everybody is long and strong commercial arrow. Everybody's focusing on commercial arrow, uh, and defense is kind of in the back closet at the moment. It is interesting, and yes, last year was a, was a monster uh, year. If even if companies are giving back some of those uh, gains, Richard, I'm going to ask you about you know the impact of the marks on air programs uh, in a moment. But Sasha, I want to get to you, um, and we're going to talk about specific uh, uh, Paris uh, storylines uh, once we get over this sort of like the the big picture stuff. Uh, but how did the group uh, perform in Europe, and what were the big drivers? It was pretty, I mean, pretty much the same as, as Ron said. I mean, civil stocks didn't outperform or didn't perform as much as we would have expected. And as, as I think as it, you know, most investors would have expected, the, the traditional air show uh, investment theme, if you just happen to be lazy, is you go long of civil stocks about two, two and a half weeks before the show, and then you sell them all probably about Tuesday morning of the show on the basis that by Tuesday morning, almost all of the good news <laughs> is out. You've had the run up. Um, and uh, you know you can go and go and do something else with the, with uh, with the money. Um, and you know there, there's been a bit of a, a, a run up, but I we haven't yet seen the um, uh, the sort of performance that you see in, in other shows where you know you, you can take out five, six, seven hundred basis points over a two week period, which for most investors would you know be um, a quarter making performance for. Them. But anyway, um, so you know the European average was up about two and a half percent, civil up one point seven percent, and defence up two point six. Um, it's not that any of the civil stocks were down; they just weren't up very much. They were all up, you know, of, right. of the order of, of two and a bit percent or so. But the the action in the defence stocks was really interesting. Um, again, it's mainly the small and mid caps because they are super volatile, very very sensitive to individual, uh, you know, buy or sell orders, but. 
Um, hence, uh, or Rheinmetall was up 8% this week. Why? Because chief executive said they are very close to getting a multi-billion euro order for ammunition from Germany. Now, this would be a long-term call-off contract, multi-year contract, uh, but still, you know, that for, a, uh, for an ammunition business, which is um, uh, has re annual revenues, you know, of about a billion or so, would be astonishingly uh, positive stuff. That would that would just take their ammunition business, and this is predominantly artillery ammunition, but also medium caliber cannon, um, up up to a new level. That dragged Hensolt up. We're going to talk about Hensolt later, but that dragged Hensolt up eight percent as well because the market's saying the German, the Zeitenbender, the special fund is finally coming through. Um, Kongsberg up 4%, that was good, but Babcock off 4% for no good reason, really. So those were sort of the wild performers. But I think the message from this week was, in, in equity terms, was German defence spending finally coming through. It's going to be really interesting asking the companies that, and when the politicians turn up, asking the politicians that are at the show. We can get some really good lessons uh, learned, uh, work uh, done uh, as well. Um, and I want to get to uh, Hensoldt uh, apparently being on the losing end uh, of uh, the big uh, EW contract uh, that it looks like uh, that Saab's going to get. But I'm going to ask you about that uh, in a minute. Richard, just you know, wanted to get your sense before we get to the Paris uh, part of this uh, discussion. What, what were the impact uh, impacts and your concerns about sort of where defense spending is is going and the impact of the markups? Uh, on both the defense uh, house defense appropriations and house defense authorization side of things and how they affect our programs from your standpoint? Well, I think in general, it was positive. You know, um, obviously you had, uh, there's the temptation to go shopping a bit, especially in the house and the Senate tends to dial things back a bit. You know, the addition of six F-15EXs, I believe in the, uh, the HASC uh, markup, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, was certainly a great example of that. Maybe there's the perception that there's a bit more bandwidth in St. Louis compared with what's going on in Fort Worth. Um, obviously, the headline news, of course, was uh, the survival of the alternate fighter engine for the F-35, the AETP, under uh, you know under uh, GE and Pratt XA100, XA101. That was certainly interesting, but it's still, you know, the amount of money that was uh, added, just I believe about 580 million is just, you know, around 10% of what's needed to actually bring the engine to market. And that's before you start paying for the installs. So it was a way of keeping it alive, perhaps at the expense of NGAD and NGAP, but maybe it's perceived of as a way of bridging the gap between, uh, you know, what's going on now and and the true full-blown procurement next generation of variable geometry engines. And it, indeed, uh, and just pointing out to everybody that General Electric uh, is one of our uh, sponsors. Uh, and obviously, you know, we've been discussing on this program for a long time the importance of uh, the uh, that AETP engine as an alternative uh, for the F-35 Pratt & Whitney's competing for it as well to give the, the jet the added range cooling power and everything that it needs to stay relevant, especially the, the block four version, uh, the block, you know, the, the block four version, which is the really realizes the capability of the aircraft. Just a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications sponsors our command and control coverage and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air and uh, naval uh, coverage. 
Ron, I want to uh, come back to you. Spirit Aerosystems negotiated a 34% uh, pay rise uh, for their uh, with with their unions for their unionized workforce. About 80% of the company, as you noted, um, you know, workers obviously across the sector have complained uh, about wage uh, stagnation. What does this deal mean for Spirit, but also for other companies? Given that there's often a domino effect, right? I mean. The, the, the reason companies hold a firm line on some of this stuff is, you know, we're setting precedent for the future, uh, for the industry, uh, et cetera. Well, why, why did we end up where we ended up and what does it mean sort of more broadly? Yeah, I mean, we're in a situation where labor has the upper hand, I mean, across many industries, right? And particularly our industry where you have uh, a very specialized, trained labor force. Um, so you, you want to keep people and you want to retain people. Um, you're going to have to pay people. Uh, there's there's no way around it. Uh, so I think that's just a, a sign of the times. Now, they haven't voted on it yet. I, I think the expectation is that they will, you know, um, vote for it. Um, you know, the, the leadership of the union suggested that they do so. Um, but you never know until it's done. But, um, uh, and you'll, I would expect that you will see um, across the sector similar things, I believe. Uh, Boeing's got um, in 2024, I believe, a contract uh, renegotiation with the IAM 751. Um, I think it's 24, might be 25, um, but I believe it's 24. Uh, and there'll probably be some read across there too. I mean, uh, uh, the the Boeing union is going to want to get you know paid as well uh, as they do in most industries. I, I don't know anybody in the current market environment. Uh, you know, if you're building airplanes, uh, building aircraft components, uh, working at a bank or, you know, selling cars for a living, um, you know, given the current inflationary environment, um, people want, want to be made whole. And I don't think there's any way around it. Uh, Thash or Richard, do you guys want to weigh in this uh, at all before we get to the main event, which is talking about Paris uh, storylines? Richard, do you want to take a bite out of this, given that you follow yeah. Spirit pretty closely you, you as well? Know. You know, I think this speaks to an interesting dynamic that's uh, sort of threatened the industry or part of it for some time, which is that on the defense side of the house, of course, you've got a lot of cost plus contracts and you've got all kinds of, you know, in, in, even in cases where there isn't a cost plus contract, you've got all kinds of pass through provisions and whatever else. Uh, on the commercial side, you've got some degree of protection, but it's highly selective on a contract by contract basis. And, uh, you know, obviously Spirit has some level of protection. We don't know how much. Well, they're suppliers. So I, I think when you look at this sort of headline news, it's kind of fascinating because then you have to look at the entire ecosystem of Spirit suppliers and, of course, suppliers to all the other tier one um, integrators out there. So in other words, we're looking at what appears to be a manageable situation with inflation for tier ones. But what is it like in tier two, three, and four, uh, particularly with an already tight labor market? That's going to be the real question moving forward. Uh, in, indeed. Sash, uh, do you want to add anything to that from a European standpoint and whether or not European workers have the same kind of leverage that American uh, workers have now? Yeah, I do. Um, first of all, specific skills um, have massive leverage in the current labor market. I, I mean, I was talking to a, a uh, chief executive of a munitions company the other day, and he said industrial chemists can write their own check. Uh, it, you know, there are the, there are that so few of them, and they are so much in demand. But you know, that will read across to all sorts of engineering. I'd, I'd be worried about this spirit 
I'm generally I'm worried about Spirit. I think Spirit is structurally quite a weak company in the industry. It clearly causes Boeing no end of heartache. Heartache, but um, uh, you know there, there there are longer term challenges. I can entirely understand why they made this pay deal. Here's the problem: Spirit has got some significant businesses in Belfast, Northern Ireland, uh, Prestwick, Scotland, Saint Nazaire in France, also in Morocco. So. European and North African employees of Spirit are going to look at the deal that their US colleagues got and say, we want that. Compare that with the sort of deals that are being settled in Germany at the moment, which is typically somewhere between three and 5% for this year, three and 5% for next year. And quite often on the low side of that. And this is a, a you know, a deal busting uh, sum of money that, that um, uh, Spirit are offering. And I think that there is a risk that this just absolutely pause gasoline on on the inflationary fire in the sector um, just uh, very quickly because some of the folks uh, in the audience will be asking this question right i mean it, it, uh, there is a sense that you know the company is a critical company it's really been growing uh, very robustly right Dwayne hawkins uh, and he uh, just retired and handed over the reins on the defense side of the business to mark miklos um, you know, in, in order to try to grow that business, whether in space and in hypersonics, and, and certainly looks like, uh, you know, the, the V280, very important work uh, the company is doing on the Valor program for, for Bell. Why is it that you're as down on spirit uh, as you are, Sash, right? It is one of the, I mean, I, I, A, because, as you say, it is a systemically important uh, subcontractor. And aerostructures is a difficult place to make money. The independent aerostructures companies in this sector are, um, you know, have, have not had a good, actually haven't had a good five years. It's not just pandemic. We, we have to be clear about that. It's hard to make money uh, in aerostructures compared to being an OEM or being a specialized systems company. Um, and, I, you know, Spirit is still heavily dependent on Boeing and vice versa. And that relationship and the degree to which that probably consumes an immense amount of management time, as it should do. Boeing is way the most important customer. Um, but also, you know, I, I think that distracts, though it runs the risk that it does distract the company from, uh, from uh, uh, better performance or, you know, best possible performance on other programs. Uh, that, that's, that's really something that, you know, worries me. And so did we hear, you know, from European OEMs that, uh, you know, spirit. Uh, you know, none none of the subcontracts are performing well enough. We've discussed this at ample programs, but you know, spirit's name comes up a lot. Ron, excuse me, three, two, one. Ron, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, or, or I, I think. I, yeah, I can add this. Right, um, I have to remember spirit's history. Right, it's it's hard to separate their their legacy from where they are today. Spirit, you know, it's started life as a Boeing cost center. Spirit wasn't a business until it was kind of artificially made into one when it was spun, bought by Onyx Capital. Uh, they added some assets onto it and then tried to make a, a, a business out of it. So, you know, it's first Sasha's point. Aerostructures in general is really difficult. I think in Spirit's case, it's extraordinarily difficult because that's not even how the company was originally set up. Um, so it's, they're in a tough spot. You know, I, I respect that they've been trying to grow out uh, the business into other things and defense and, and, and other things um, like that. Um, but it's, it's still a, it's a tricky place to be. And with their core customer, the largest single customer, Boeing, 
and their Boeing operations having this legacy of just being a fabricating plant for Boeing. Um, there will always be this tension between them and Boeing because any profit they make is a cost to Boeing. Um, I've said this before, right? And I, and, I, and I think it's an important concept. You know, why is, you know, we always say, well, aerostructures is hard. Why? I mean, it's not because drilling holes in metal is that hard, right? I mean, I don't want to belittle that. But I mean, the issue becomes when you build avionics, you have scale. You can make radios and displays for a multitude of aircraft. So you can build it, you know, for a, a, a G700 and you can stick it in a, a global 7500 and you can make it lighter and smaller and put it in a Cessna aircraft or number. I mean, you've got scale and scope across your business. When you're building 737 fuselages, you have no scale and scope. All you got is uh, the tooling and, and everything in place to make those fuselages for one customer. Um, you're not putting A320s down that same line or anything like that. It's a, and that's what makes aerostructure so tricky is it's highly bespoke to one product. It's not leverageable across other product lines. So it's a tricky, tricky business. Um, Richard, anything you want to add uh, quickly before we uh, move on? Yeah, you know, I mean, I understand Sash and Ron's points, but uh, one thing I would say is that, you know, still overwhelmingly, it's a 737 company, despite efforts of diversification. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing right now, because Boeing has made it very clear that for the next 15 years, that's what they're doing. There will be no new launches, which means the overwhelming bulk of their revenue, which means uh, Spirit's problems are Boeing's problems. It's no longer a tension thing. Yes, there, there is that tension, but it's no longer about tension. It's about, my God, we can't let them, you know, <laughs> have ruinous finances. We can't let them not access capital. Uh, you know, they are our problem. And that gives them kind of a bizarrely secure base from which to expand in defense and other fields. So I think things might not be as bad as they seem, mostly on the basis of Boeing saying that the 737 will stay overwhelmingly their biggest program, not just at Boeing, but at Spirit. Uh, Ron, let me just uh, come back to you. Uh, one news item is uh, Ball, uh, the company with humble little beginnings in 1880, uh, building um, ball jars for canned goods, you know, in the 1950s expanded into aerospace. And, you know, it's it's a $15 billion company. That aerospace uh, part of it is uh, a wholly owned subsidiary. But now the company is discussing spinning it off in part because of the really sophisticated space work the company uh, does. What does this mean uh, overall? Because there are some people who've looked at this and said, wow, I mean, you know, they're in canning and packaging and all this other stuff on the commercial side of the business. And then they have an aerospace side of the business uh, that is just 180 degrees out from, you know, all the other things the company does. So you could say they could unlock maybe a lot of value in this. What's what's the sense here uh, ultimately on how this plays out and what the implications are? Yeah, that was there was press reports about that uh, late on Friday, and uh, I mean, and I, I, you, I think you articulated it quite well. Uh, you know, analysts that follow like paper and packaging and that sort of thing typically aren't up the curve on um, uh, space, and uh, you know, particularly national security oriented space and earth intelligence and that kind of thing. Um, so by by spinning it, um, you, you achieve a couple things. One, um, it would be uh, followed by uh, investors and analysts that you know, know something about about the business, and then 
presumably you would get credit for you know what what's in that business and i think if you look today where space assets are, space assets are trading relative to kind of paper and packaging and you know jars and that sort of thing um it's two different sets of multiples so uh, there probably is a pretty good credible argument here for uh for separating the two uh we, we've seen it i mean again and again and again right I mean, uh, ge and you know, breaking up of ge uh, raytheon technologies you know getting rid of the uh, uh elevators and uh, air conditioning that you know spinning out these business units that are really don't have anything in common um and letting investors pick and choose what they want to get exposure to and having management teams more focused on uh, kind of the assets at hand is it's a trend we've seen recently in the market so it follows that We'll see where it all plays out, um, uh, but it, it, it's not surprising, and, and, and I'm not surprised it didn't happen before, honestly. And a quick note to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, let's uh, keep moving on because Ron, we've only got you for a couple of minutes. Let me start on the commercial uh, side uh, first. Uh, and Sash, why don't you uh, start us off, right? I mean, an interesting note, uh, para, pre-Paris note, uh, you and your uh, colleague, Nick Cunningham, uh, put out about what numbers look like, right? This might be the biggest numbers show. W- what kind of numbers could we end up seeing and how many of the numbers that we see are actually real numbers? Cause once upon a time, companies were at least somewhat more diligent, although I don't think they were nearly as diligent. You know what I mean? I mean, there was a lot of BSRE involved in this anyway, take it away. Uh, uh, Sash. And then uh, Richard would like your take and Ron yours on, on what is it we should expect and what, what's sensible and what's not maybe. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, you know, the, the question, I suppose, is what, what will a good Paris air show look like? And, you know, the context for that is that there's been sort of media reports. There could be 2,000 uh, aircraft ordered uh, this coming week. Um, and, you know, what we just set out to do, I mean, first of all, is to, to highlight, uh, as you say, just the degree to which the, the term order has been rather debased. Um, now, you know, that's being, I suppose, uh, you know, we're, we're being slightly overstripped on things, but, you know, there are genuine orders signing on the dotted line with cash or oh, bring it on. Great. But then there are options, memoranda of, of understanding, letters of intent, um, commitments. I always love commitments. Um, it's it's the most fantastically woolly term. But, you know, let's be clear. Next week, every single one of those will appear at some stage uh, as, as headlines, and they'll all be t- totted up at the end and counted as quotes unquote orders. Um, it's not difficult to get to 2,000 uh, aircraft. Actually, if all that happens next week is that Boeing and Airbus re-announce with more fanfare and some champagne and a lot more photographs, um, statements uh, that have been made earlier on this year. You know, if, if you look at that, Air India. Air India actually hasn't made it into the backlogs of uh, a backlog of Airbus yet. Um, and that was a, a 470 aircraft order. Indigo, um, the, uh, the, the leading Indian carrier, has just said that, um, uh, or has been pretty clear in the last couple of weeks, that you know, they're looking to buy 700 aircraft. Um, pretty strange, given they've got 390 A320s left in backlog. But, uh, you know, intra-Indian rivalry is absolutely brutal at the moment. And that's going to end in tears, but we'll leave that for, uh, for another day. Um, 
Turkish Airlines said earlier on that, uh, you know, they weren't going to announce something at Paris. Uh, but if you'll remember, before the Turkish general election, they were talking about a 600 aircraft order to see them through in the 2030s. Do you want to bet that um, Boeing and Airbus salesmen won't be going to Turkish and saying, look, if you announce at Paris, we'll take another million, two million, three million off the price of each aircraft for you? Because that's how these things are done. So, you know, if, if, if we got Air India re-announced, but actually signed, Indigo uh, announced, Turkish Airlines announced, that leaves, that, that takes us really close to the 2000 number before any other airline actually open either their mouth or their checkbook next week. Um, so, that, so put that in perspective, biggest ever, air, air, you know, airship order was about uh, 1200 back in 2017. So um, this is going to be a very, very big show. The, the question is going to be if all or if a disproportionate number of those orders are focused on the Indian subcontinent. And remember, Turkish will be looking to take uh, traffic from the Gulf carriers to and from the, the Indian subcontinent as well. Um, we're getting incredible geographical concentration uh, in a market that has neither the regulatory process nor the um, uh, infrastructure to cope with that. Um, but that's for another day. Richard, uh, your your take, uh, and Ron, I want to get your take before you punch out here in a couple of minutes. Go ahead, Richard. Well, I don't think it'll come as a surprise to uh, my esteemed colleagues and probably everybody else that I feel exactly the same way as Sash. Um, you know, there's two things going okay, on. Okay, everybody, the- that's it for the show. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I've said enough. Uh, you know, two things. One is the double counting that Sash is talking about. Basically, everyone wants the same pot of traffic. They want to be a super connector. You know, Emirates, Etihad, and Qatar got there. The Turks want to copy. The Saudis want the copy. And, of course, the Indians want their damn traffic back that has been taken by the super connectors. So, it's the same pot of traffic. 2,000 jets will raise headlines or something close to 2,000. But ultimately, let's be realistic. And I think more importantly, you know, orders are for tourists. Uh, professionals, I think, look at traffic. <laughs> and, you know, this is where you're going to get to the plateau effect. Right now, it's super easy to convince your board as an airline, your financiers as an airline, the rest of your managing team as an airline that, you know, we're growing it. Wow, look at this double digit comeback. It's going to keep going up. Eventually, like all recoveries from a you know severe downturn, it's going to look like a division sign. We're going to plateau out, especially if there's any kind of broader economic slowdown. And all of a sudden, that whole optimistic expectation of perpetual double digit growth will go back into the quotidian realities of a couple percent a year. You know, if we're lucky, we'll get back to the 5% per year, but no one is saying that anymore, right? Everyone's like, yeah, 3.5 is the the new 5.1 or whatever. So between double counting and that plateauing out effect, I think the uh, order should be taken with a very strong dose of salt. I I also uh, find it amazing how each one of these jets, uh, the long haul jets have been reconfigured with vast first class sections sort of, you know, a, a relatively small sort of economy plus and actually a much smaller back, uh, back end of the airplane, right? I mean, once it was amber waves of seats going all the way, uh, you know, from pretty much a relatively small front. And I think the dynamics of it are, well, I mean, you know, they have a lot more seats they could sell at $6,000. They've got a couple of seats that they can sell at like $2,600. And then actually it drives up the price of the seats in the back of the airplane 
where you're now paying 1800 uh, uh, bucks for a ticket that used to be like a thousand or 1200, you know, or maybe 1500 bucks. I think it's kind of yeah, interesting but, how they've geared that dynamic. Yeah. But Valgo, this is, this is Willie Sutton meets airline management. That's where the money is. <laughs> yeah, it, it is indeed. It is indeed. I'm not telling them that they're wrong doing it. I just think that, you know, now that we're kind of back traveling long haul again, the composition of of uh, you know the passenger deck is 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 different. Ron, let me go to you because you got a couple of minutes before you're going into an important lunch. What what are you expecting to get out of this show? Talk about on both on the commercial as well as on the defense side, given that Sash, uh, uh, Richard, and I are going to talk about a lot of the European uh, defense news that we're going to see. Might take a couple things, and when when I think about the aircraft in the end, that could be real winners, real orders that'll really kind of stick. Um, I look at the A321 uh, LR uh, and maybe the XLR. I think it's going to do quite well at this show. Uh, and the 7879, I think will do quite well at this show. Uh, other things I'm looking for are, you know, where are the hurdles in the supply chain? What's going on with bearings? What's going on with all the special metals? Not just castings and forgings, but uh, everything that's going along in this vast supply chain. And what's so beautiful about the show is everybody's here, right? the folks that make the seat covers all the way up to the entire airplane. Uh, so, you know, my, my hope is to be digging through some garbage cans and just kind of find where, where are the weaknesses and, and where are the surprises and, and so on and so forth. But, but I think those two OE platforms, and then we might get a nice little surprise at Embraer. They've been suspiciously quiet going into the show. So I wouldn't be surprised if our friends in uh, Salzo just Campos have something to announce here. Uh, uh, and then, and then on the defense side, really uh, just sort of, you know, what, Where's F-35, NGAD, kind of all that, all that overall stuff and, and what's going on. I mean, my sense is this is going to be a, a, a show that's probably going to have more of a focus with good reason on the land war in Europe and what it means and so on and so forth. And uh, so we, we have an eye on that, on that too. But uh, if, you know, I, if I can leave this show and feel good that we had a productive show, it'll give me a much better understanding of what's going on on the execution side of the industry. Right. I don't, I don't think anybody's debating right now. There's demand for planes and, you know, what's real demand and what's not real demand. You know, that's an arguable point, but there's demand, right. That's clear. Right. Uh, but how can the industry really, execute on it and you know where are the unknown unknowns from an execution point of view and that's hopefully what we'll get out of it if all goes well ron thanks very much uh and uh break a leg and look forward uh to having you on for the after action uh next week uh so so you can you know after you've connected all the dots for your investors you can share it with the general public <laughs> yeah as always Barbara, very much. and hope to see you this week all right Take care, yeah, guys. looking forward to it, man. All the best. See yeah. you later. Sash, why don't you start us off? Because there's a, a lot of news we have to talk about and not, unfortunately, as much time to talk about it as, as we'd like. BAE Systems took reporters uh, to Wharton to make clear that the Tempest program is really tangible, right? And it's uh, no accident given uh, that uh, the you know biggest military program that's going to be spotlighted at Paris is obviously the SCAF program involving uh, France, Germany, as, as well as uh, Spain. Start us off on what was important about that. Uh, and then want to also get your take on the other big news, right? I mean, sort of, you know, wh where we are on Tempest, but what we should expect to hear from SCAF. Uh, and then Richard, want to get your sense on that. And then the extraordinary news that Saab looks like it has beat a number of other companies to make the electronic warfare system uh, for a, for the latest update uh, on uh, the Eurofighter. 
which is just incredible seeing as how Hensold was, uh, you know, uh, the incumbent on that. Anyway, start us off on what the combat air aviation news is going to be. And Richard, want to get your sense uh, on that uh, as well. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, this really plays to Ron's comment that um, despite the uh, potential tsunami of civil aircraft orders, this is going to be a much more balanced show uh, in terms of civil and military news flow than, than we've had for, for many a year. And the defense stuff is going to be absolutely fascinating. So BA took a, um, uh, a bunch of journalists up on an embargoed uh, uh, visit to the, the Wharton facility, their main combat aircraft facility, to see progress on the, the Tempest um, next generation, sixth generation fighter. And people I spoke to were very, very impressed indeed. Why? Because they are already, or they and their co uh, consortium members are already doing serious testing and serious building of components for the demonstrator that should fly late 26, early 27. Um, <clears throat> so Martin Baker, you know, the world's um, probably best, certainly biggest producer of ejector seats, <clears throat> are already doing ejector seat trials. Uh, you know, they started the campaign there. They have a production representative um, forward fuselage and they are firing dummies out. Um, that, you know, that's really good to see. More impressive though, is that BAE has produced the engine um, air duct or several engine air ducts. They're going to produce three in total for the, for, for the demonstrator <clears throat> so that Rolls-Royce can test um, uh, the engine installation. Why is this important? Firstly, it's a huge job with any supersonic aircraft to get to a situation where the aircraft flies supersonically, but the air at the face of the engine is coming in in a very stable, preferably just... Um, uh, subsonic way and gives the engine the best chance to produce really high quality thrust. Um, that's a challenge of itself. Secondly, the engine intake is one of the big areas of risk in terms of stealth. Um, if an enemy radar can see your engine, the fan, uh, how it rotates, the speed it rotates, the number of blades, they can identify you tens, tens, tens of miles off, probably hundreds of miles off, if they get the right view. So you have to hide the engine from enemy radars up front. So the intakes tend to have a, 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 an S shape. They tend to be heavily uh, coated in radar absorbent material. And um, yet they've still got to cope with this incredibly difficult airflow. Um, BA have produced this, Rolls-Royce are testing the engine. And get this, the duct is 10 meters long. And that means that we can scale Tempest. Um, you've got a 10 meter air duct, you've got a four meter uh, engine at the back end of it, let's say another meter and a bit of um, of uh, tail emp and empennage and four meters at the front uh, for the um, uh, cockpit and, and nose. You've got a 20 meter aircraft um, weighing somewhere between uh, 20 and 25 tons. Um, that's an F-15 class aircraft. Why does that matter? It matters because one of the partners in Tempest Global Combat Aircraft Program is one of the two largest current users of F-15s, Japan. Um, right. The, sec the largest export user of F-15s, Saudi Arabia, has traditionally been a very, very good customer of BAE systems. So BAE is clearly aiming Tempest at the F-15 replacement market. And here's the, here's the question uh, I ask. United States, what are you going to offer to the uh, six nations who, off who operate in total about 650 F-15s when they come to replace them? They won't all come to replace them at the same time. Um, Japan and Saudi are definitely the the earliest, but where is the sixth generation twin-engined 
air superiority aircraft that you will offer against BAE's uh, Tempest and against um, uh, the Franco-German SCAF. Because if you haven't got something, you've just lost that market. I think it's, a, it's an existential threat for um, uh, not just the US combat aircraft industry, I mean, which effectively we're talking about Boeing here, but uh, for you know, US um, air power and uh, influence over what are some pretty key uh, export customers here. So, I mean, that, that's, I think, what was really important about the Tempest trip. And uh, w- one thing uh, that I'm not sure, Sash, you mentioned, right, but you had in your report that the Tempest is actually a 26-ton aircraft as opposed to a 20-ton aircraft, which is the F-15. So we're also looking at something which is, you know, sort of a really beefier airplane uh, in uh, a lot of it uh, by by doing your sort of analysis of individual components and how they come together uh, as, a, as a whole. And of course, the U.S. Air Force isn't exporting the next generation air dominance aircraft, nor does it have particularly any interest in doing so. And it's also not building a lot of them, right? And it's going to make build about 200 of them and a lot more collaborative combat aircraft. Richard, what is it that you expect to – first, I mean, what do you make of, of uh, Sasha's brilliant analysis? But on the other and, – and what is it your expectation that we're going to hear from uh, the Dassault Airbus team effectively on, on, on SCAF, which, which is the bell of this ball, at least on the defense side of the equation? Yeah, that's right. Um, and take you back four years to the last Le Bourget we had. And of course, there was the mock-up, um, a very convincing, very credible mock-up from Dassault uh, of SCAF. Um, obviously, not a lot behind you know, the fabric or, or thin metal or wood or whatever it was made out of. But I expect we're going to see a similar sort of confident display by all of the French companies involved. And I would be very surprised to not hear some kind of grumbling behind the scenes about this being the sort of classic EU program from the 1960s, where, you know, basically France has big ambitions and Germany is expected to pay half, you know, the 60s called. They want their industrial scheme back, I suppose. You know, I, <laughs> I, I still don't see what room there is for German industry. I don't see the logic in any of this. So I, I think we'll see a lot of confidence from French suppliers, as they should be confident. And I think eventually this does happen under a French flag and really not a lot else. But, you know, it's obvious that Rafael, incredibly enough, is going to follow the pattern of all the other mirages that came before it and be two thirds export. I, I didn't think they'd do that after 25 years of trying and failing to get an export customer. But as we all know, now it's boom times for Raphael exports. So it might just wind up being two thirds export like the Mirages. So, you know, the French have every reason to persist. And I think you'll hear a lot of confidence, but a lot of cracks in the seams behind the whole concept of a Franco-German combat aircraft. You know, regarding the implications for America, um, assuming that Camp SF-3 becomes exportable and not too heavyweight. Um, And if SCAF goes ahead under French auspices, I think those concerns are completely valid. You're starting to hear them in the U.S. too. You know, FAXX for the Navy is probably not going to be much more of an export fighter than the Hornet and Super Hornet was. Actually, Hornet was a bit more of an export fighter, but not in F-16 numbers by any means. And, uh, you know, by the back half of the 2030s, the F-35 might be getting long in the tooth. And the NGAD is, uh, of course, you know, it, it's just, it's it's going to be an F-111 class aircraft, period. So this looks like a very understandable concern. And the implications for the U.S. in terms of, say, 
uh, arms export reform of regulations to make sure that U.S. suppliers have a decent chance of getting on export programs, if not Tempest F3 and SCAF, then, then others that are proliferating around the world. You'll certainly see this proliferation of airframes at the air show. Uh, but I think the consequences are pretty uh, potentially very significant. Um, I, I would also point out just, you know, if you're looking at models, the Tempest model was always a bigger airplane than what SCAF looks like. And if we are to believe reporting, it's going to be powered by two M88s, uh, right? So at some point you have to ask, okay, well, if the concern now is that Rafale is a little underpowered because of the M88, what does that bode for what SCAF looks like, even though I think that they're talking about that as demonstrator power? And, uh, you know, I think that they've also uh, ruled out the EJ-200, which is what powers the Eurofighter. Uh, so that kind of uh, makes makes that all interesting. Speaking of the Eurofighter, Sash, uh, bring us home. How big of a hit is that? How, how, what is, what's the significance of Saab winning this order. The company is one of the real sleeper giants in electronic warfare uh, and in radar technology. I mean, it, they they bat well above their class weight. And what does this mean for Hensolt uh, to have been beat on what has been its turf for a long time? Yeah, okay. So uh, the program um, is the uh, Eurofighter electronic combat reconnaissance uh, variant. Um, this is a, a, a very specifically German variant. They previously did an ECR tornado, which is an incredibly capable, uh, air, you know, air defense suppression uh, and escort jammer. Um, so this is the the upgrade of that. Uh, initially, only fifteen aircraft, but it's to accompany German uh, nuclear armed F thirty five. So it's a program that Germany really believes in. They have incredible skill in uh, this area and. Uh, it, it, it matters to Germany. So the program was was bid. Hensolt, which is the German Defense Electronics Company, they're the incumbent on uh, uh, Tornado ECR, and they are the German uh, censors house. Uh, you'd expect it to be a shoe in for them. I was really surprised to see that Saab has won it. The, they are supplying their Arexis uh, electronic warfare system. I'm going to go straight to their stand on Monday and talk to them about it because uh, this is a, a huge win for them. Um, and it's going to produce an aircraft that is very similar to an F-18G Growler uh, in terms of, uh, of capabilities. Um, clearly, if they can do that uh, on, a, on a Typhoon uh, Eurofighter platform, they can do it on a Gripen. They can probably do it on somebody else's aircraft as well. And so for a company that is by no means the biggest electronics company, uh, defense electronics company in Europe, I mean, that, that award goes to Thales, uh, pretty closely followed by Leonardo. For them to win such a technologically advanced um, uh, you know, contract against uh, the incumbent in Germany. Whoa, very, very impressive indeed. Uh, I, I think this is, you know, uh, an astonishing overturn of an incumbent uh, in this space. Sash, very quick. Uh, everybody's focuses on the counteroffensive. Uh, some very good news reporting. And New York Times had a terrific uh, story, weekend story, uh, that the Russians are actually learning uh, and doing better than they have and that's making the lives of the ukrainians very difficult your your sense um on how this is all going as as the world kind of holds its breath uh, i think it, it's going painfully slowly the casualty levels are very high it's becoming increasingly obvious that we actually have not donated enough equipment to ukraine you know we've donated 
tanks in the low hundreds uh, and armored vehicles in the sort of mid hundreds, you know, not even a thousand. Um, armored vehicle casualties are really high when you are um, trying to breach a fixed uh, fixed set of defensive lines. Uh, so yeah, you know, fingers crossed. But I think this it's a it's a very very tough uh, process. This one, I don't think we should expect a dramatic breakthrough uh, anytime soon. How much we we hope for it. Just as a, as a as an aside, um, <clears throat> visiting some defense companies this week, they said the whole Ukrainian war has dramatically accelerated the decision making processes of European defense ministries. European defense ministries, which used to take between five to ten years to decide they wanted a particular piece of equipment. Uh, are now doing it in you know 12 to 18 months max and probably even less that's a dramatic turnaround uh or in terms of performance long may that continue uh in indeed and i think it that's uh sadly what it does uh highlight um guys thanks very much for joining us really appreciate it uh hope you guys have a very productive air show and hopefully we're going to see each other over the course of the week uh, and to our audience our normal monday program the look ahead uh with byron callan of capital alpha partners as well as our normal russia update will be happening on tuesday uh, and then our normal coverage uh through the week and this roundtable will give us uh, a comprehensive uh recap uh of the air show next Sunday. And I would also point out that my uh, co-host JJ Gertler uh, is in town so that we will bring you the air power program from the Paris Air Show as well as an update. And you may actually see one of these uh, two august gentlemen that we have on the program now maybe join us uh, for some commentary if there is some truly newsy news. Uh, in the meantime, guys, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks to the audience for joining us. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Thanks very much and hope you don't wear out your shoe leather. Thanks very uh, much, indeed, Vago. See you at the show. Yeah, thanks very much, Vago. Let's all get through this together. Thanks very much again, guys.